Well, this morning during our time in God's Word, we're going to talk about a couple of my very favorite things. And if they're not a couple of your very favorite things already, I hope they become a couple of your favorite things. We're going to be talking about irony and sovereignty. When something's ironic, it looks a certain way, and then you find out it's not really the way it looked originally. It's different. It turns out differently than it, first, than it first appeared. It's ironic. Sometimes I don't like irony, but today I like the irony. Sovereignty, another favorite topic. The sovereignty of God. It's talking about God's kingship. Uh, if God is the sovereign, He is the king, and the God of the Bible not only is the king, He also has perfect wisdom and perfect power to do whatever it is He decrees to have happen. The God of the Bible has a purpose, and His purpose is unfolding in and throughout the course of history. And what's so intriguing to me is when you have irony and sovereignty together, you're in for some excitement. Because a lot of things are not as they first appear when it comes to God's purposes. And in particular, when we focus on Jesus' passion, His suffering, and then ultimate passion as He gets closer and closer to Calvary, you see the the irony practically coming off of the pages. There's a lot of irony, and yet it's all according to an unfolding purpose. You see sovereignty almost everywhere. So this morning, what we're going to do is look at the 26th chapter of the gospel according to Matthew. We're going to look at the first 16 verses of Matthew chapter 26. And if you are, if you are a note taker or just want to follow along with my rationale as we work our way through 16 verses, we will look at four ironies that underscore sovereignty. Four ironies that underscore sovereignty. And in particular, Ironies that relate to Jesus, His passion, the sovereignty of Jesus even as King Jesus. It's going to be good. Not because I'm good at doing this, but because Jesus is good and the drama of redemption is extraordinarily good. I think you'll be encouraged. You might be challenged. Now, if you're thinking, I thought it was Reformation Sunday. Why aren't you preaching on the solas? I was this close. Um, I had uh, Those notes are still open on my computer at home. Wasn't sure about what to do, almost up until yesterday. But I channeled my inner Luther, Calvin, and Knox, and uh, they all thought it would be a good idea to preach Christ in honor of the Reformation. Uh, I kid, but you get the idea of what we're up to. Okay, so let's go ahead. If you're just joining us, we're working our way through this great gospel account. Glad you're here. You'll be able to fit right in if you would like to do that and seeing Jesus as the sovereign, the king who's in charge and in control, even as we'll see when it might not look like he is. We'll see that he is. Okay, let's see the first irony, number one, the irony of crucifixion. And we see this in the opening two verses of Matthew 26. It says in verse 1 of Matthew 26, that when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Did you see the irony? 
the son, let's start with the son of man, the end of verse two says, the son of man will be delivered up, not to be exalted and enthroned as he should be from a human perspective, will be delivered up to be crucified. Those two things seemingly don't belong together. It's jumping off the page practically does not belong together. The Son of Man delivered up to be crucified. Now, if you're just joining us, or maybe you need a reminder, I'm a bit of a broken record here, and I will be till the day I die. The Son of Man is not stressing Jesus' humility and humanity, though it's not denying either one. The Son of Man is a formal title taken from the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. It's a messianic prophecy. It's a Christological prophecy. A Messiah is a king, a deliverer, a ruler, one who is supposed to protect his people, provide for his people, deliver his people when necessary. Messiah and Christ, same words, different languages. So Daniel 7.13 talks about one who's like a son of man, who will, whose kingdom will be without end. He will rule and reign forever. And that's never happened because all of the messiahs who've gone before, some good, some not so good, have died. It's impossible for them to rule and reign forever. Therefore, it's impossible for them to perfectly provide for, save and protect their people. And yet there's this promise in the Old Testament, not only in Daniel 7, but that's where Son of Man talk comes from. One day... There's going to be an ultimate son of man. There's going to be an ultimate, yes, he will be a human and more, but stresses an ultimate king. One day and his kingdom will be without end. We're waiting for him. And with every baby born in in and amongst the Jewish people, is this going to be the one? Is this going to be the one? Is this going to be the one? We hope this next one is more like David than like Saul. But even David died and anticipated one who would come later. So here, the Son of Man, oh, the Son of Man should be should be delivered up and exalted and praised and, and worshipped. And, and if He's the Son of Man, then He's the one. Irony, irony, irony to be crucified. Not only to, to die, that's bad enough, but he, if He's going to be crucified in light of what the Old Testament and New Testament says... Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, Galatians 3.13, quoting Deuteronomy chapter 21. Seriously? That's not right. At least when we're talking in terms of irony, it doesn't look right. There's more to it though. Now context also calls for irony. So a son of man crucified, context also calls for irony because look there with me if you would again at verse 1 where it says, When Jesus had finished all these sayings, and it goes on to talk about how he's going to be crucified. On purpose, Matthew is linking. Jesus finishes all these sayings. He's referring back to 24 and 25, chapters 24 and 25. And remember, if you don't, I'll remind you what 24 and 25 talked about. In chapters 24 and 25, he just finishes those things. And then he goes on to talk about how he's going to be crucified. And it's it's one of those head-tilting Scrunch your face up seriously? Moments because he just got done talking about it, chapter 24 and 25, how he, the Son of Man, will be the judge. 
Second coming talk, 24 and 25. And he will, re- he will come from heaven, divine origin. And he will come with his angel sovereignty. And he will be there for his elect sovereignty. And it just stresses it again and again and again and again. So we're thinking King Jesus, mighty Jesus, ruling and reigning, judge Jesus. Sovereign, sovereign, sovereign king. And he, then when he finishes saying those things, you know it's Passover in two days. And that same son of man we just learned about will be crucified. It's, it's, very, very ironic. Well, I don't need to take my word for it. I got too excited and I didn't read the verses. I just gave you the gist off the top of my head. 2430 talks about the Son of Man. It goes on to talk about He's coming on the clouds of heaven with power. See, it's not stressing humility. With power and great glory. That's kingly. His his angels, loud trumpet call, gather his elect. Matthew 24, 44. The Son of Man, the Messiah is coming. Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him, that one All the nations will be gathered. He will separate people. He will place the sheep on his right. Then the king, he's the king, will say to those on his right, and all this happens according to the what happened before the foundation of the world. Matthew 25, 41. I just can't help myself. One more sample example. Then he will say to those on his left. The stress is judge, 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 unique one, sovereign king, Messiah, Christ, And then for effect, I like to say, dot, 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 26 verse 2, crucified. Something's not right. Oh, but it is. But it doesn't seem like it is. There's irony involved with all of this. Make no mistake about it. He's going to be crucified. He's telling them this is going to happen. He's not a victim of circumstance. And you know, if you've been reading Matthew, or even if you haven't, I'll remind you, this isn't coming out of left field. This isn't anything new. I mean, it's impressive to read those first two verses that he says, this is what's going to happen. And I've got to jump ahead a little bit. The Jewish leaders who are going to do it to him say it's not going to happen during Passover, which is more sovereignty, but I'm getting ahead of myself. It's going to happen when he says... But this is, this is what he's been stressing throughout the gospel account. For example, Matthew 16, 21. He must go to Jerusalem and be killed and raised on the third day. Matthew chapter 17 says, in essence, the same thing. Going to be delivered and they will kill him. Matthew chapter 20, verse 18. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death. And we can look at other, the other gospel accounts and see... Sovereign purpose, sovereign purpose, sovereign purpose, sovereign purpose. This is how it's going to be. It seems wrong. It seems terrible. It seems awful because he's the innocent one. That's right thinking. But it's serving a greater purpose. Because he is the redeemer who will be resurrected. Oh, who, by the way, will be able to rule and reign. Therefore, forever. And fulfill Daniel chapter 7. This is quite... Amazing to see what's happening here. 
Before we move on to the next point of irony and sovereignty, I do want to draw your attention to where it says in verse 2, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. More sovereignty if we think in terms of Passover. The Passover is where the Jews would celebrate God's saving of his people, right? Deliverance from the Egyptian oppressors and God would provide a way for them to be saved. Now we might call it lowercase s saved. They'll be delivered. They'll be set free, saved from bondage, oppression. Passover. Passover is all about salvation. Apply the blood and be saved from the angel of death. Passover from Exodus. But we know, according to our gospel account, let's make the connection between Passover, which is an act of salvation, and Matthew one twenty one, Jesus will save his people from their sins. Capital S, let's call it salvation. Ultimate salvation. And I can't help but notice, in light of all of this big picture sovereignty, how it's all unfolding... Each and every one of those Passover celebrations has been waiting for this, the ultimate Passover. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Jesus, our Passover lamb. All of the anticipation, all of the expectation, all of those celebrations of a good and powerful and amazing salvation, but a lesser salvation, a temporary salvation. And here we are, according to God's sovereign design, Jesus says, I am going to be crucified, delivered over, and it's going to be at the Passover celebration. I've come to save my people from their sins. I'm the true spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin. It's so good. It's as if there's a whole divine plan or something. (sighs) Which Jesus actually just talked about in the last chapters. It's exactly that reality. He's the ultimate Passover lamb and he will provide perfect atonement, perfect deliverance. I say a million times yes. The king crucified. What? But we'll see it will be the king resurrected because he's the perfect representative. All by design. Let's move on to another point of irony. Number two, the irony of rejection. The irony of rejection. Then look, look, look with me if you would at verse three. Then, almost to say, then after Jesus spelled out exactly what was going to happen, that they were supposed to know by divine design, then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas. So who's going to be involved according to Jesus telling him how it's going to be? The chief priests, they're the representatives of the Jewish, let's call them aristocracy. They're bigwigs. The elders of the people, so they are what we might call lay leaders, representing the people, not compensated as religious leaders. And then the the high priest named Caiaphas. Now, before we get to Caiaphas, there is a group missing. And I never thought in my whole life I would compliment the Pharisees. I'm going to go on record and compliment the Pharisees on Reformation Day. Oh, they're they're spiritual thugs. Don't get me wrong. We have enough scriptural data to to know that. But they're not here. 
in part because they still have enough backbone and conviction that they don't want to play political with Rome. It doesn't mean they're right. It just means they're less wrong than these other guys. Okay? These other ones are in union with Rome. Remember, they're being oppressed by Rome. No faithful Jew would want to be involved with Rome and corrupting what's happening in Jerusalem. They want Rome out. But these guys have gotten used to having Rome in. Helps cash flow. Might help for other reasons. Trusting in their military might. As long as we scratch your back, you can scratch our back. As opposed to uh, depending upon God and His Messiah, King, Ruler, Provider. There's a lot of things going on here. But for now, let's just see. I think we have a friend up here. No, it's just a cricket. It's not a spider. (laughs) I was just going to point out the obvious. One time, years ago, I was sitting over here and the biggest creature, I'm not even going to say what it was because I wouldn't want you to ever think there was such a creature in the church building. But I was so thankful that when a man who was sitting up close had boots on just went crunch. (sighs) The Lord works in mysterious ways. (laughs) Where were we? (laughs) Oh. The high priest named Caiaphas. We do, we do want to give some attention to, to the high priest named Caiaphas because Caiaphas is a standout. Not a standout good guy, but he's actually a standout lifelong politician kind of priest because there have been many priests under Roman occupation. Many, many, many high priests. In fact, they seem a dime a dozen. So how about this historically? Between 37 B.C., And A.D. 67, pretty small window, there were 28 high priests. So they're really working their way through high priests. Rome uses them as they see fit. And there was some some maneuvering here because the high priest is supposed to come from the Levitical line, but they didn't always have a guy that they could have in their back pocket who was in that line. And so there would be some maneuvering and maybe if it could be through marriage, all kinds of interesting, weird things were going on. But Caiaphas, Caiaphas is high priest for 18 years. So that means he's really good at being bad. He, that's why I called him. He, he's, a, he's a lifetime career politician priest. Okay? This has been a good gig for Caiaphas. And he's the guy in charge. As one who is a bad actor, one we wouldn't be fans of, he's the one who wants Jesus outed. Now, this, this is ironic that Jesus is rejected. I haven't really even gotten to that part yet, I guess. Because let's keep reading and then we'll get to it. Verse 4 says, And plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth or deceit and kill him. So the big players who are supposed to be the faithful God types, if you will, minus the Pharisees, want to plot and have Jesus killed. Why is that ironic? Well, let me give you a hint. They're Jewish. Let me give you another hint. The Jews have been waiting, supposedly, for 
the Messiah. The expectation, the messianic expectation. Is it going to be this child born? Is it going to be this child born? Is it going to be this child born? Is this going to be the one who can fulfill the promise of Daniel chapter 7? Is this going to be the the ultimate one who comes in the line of David and fulfill the Davidic covenant? We're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. And I guarantee you that Caiaphas would have been right there with them. This is what every Jew is waiting for, supposedly. And yet these guys have seen Jesus with their own eyes throughout the land, public ministry, not in someone's heart, not in some weird dream or vision. This has been Jesus in public doing all of these things with all different kinds of people in all different kinds of settings. They've been seeing, they've been hearing, there are eyewitnesses and testimonies given. And we know they've concluded that he's a threat and we have got to kill him. That's ironic It's very ironic. The very people who are supposed to and supposedly who are waiting for him say, let's kill him. And Jesus, even today, is a great threat to fake, empty, religious leaders, even if they say the right things. And we're seeing it here as a great, horrible kind of example But it's not only ironic, it also stresses sovereignty. Jesus is never, ever, ever, ever bowed the knee to their expectations or their demands because he is sovereign. He writes the script. He's in charge. Not only that, we could see sovereignty if we were to look elsewhere in the Bible because what's going to happen here, even though it seems so wrong on its surface and it is wrong when it comes to the bad actors, it is according to the predetermined plan and purpose of God. You can read that in Acts chapter 2. Some translations even use the word predestined. And if that gives you apoplexy, we'll use the word predetermined because they mean the same thing. This is according to a sovereign plan. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. But we also see sovereignty involved here when we look at verse 5. They plot to kill Jesus. And then let's go on in verse 5. But they said, not during the feast, that would be the Passover feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Luke 22, 2 says, they're afraid of the people. Matthew 21, 46, they, they feared the people. So what I want you to see here is, The obvious, but sometimes the obvious is what's so profound. We're going to kill him, but it's not going to be at Passover because we're afraid. But what did Jesus just say to his disciples? They're going to kill me, and it's going to be when? At Passover. It's going to be this way because it's how it's always been planned to be. And these clowns who have a lot of power and a lot of clout aren't in charge here. Even he is in charge of his own execution. Pretty fascinating. It is going to happen then. Ready to move on to the third one? Let's do it. The next irony is the irony of wasting on Jesus. Wasting valuables, wasting money, wasting that which is significant on Jesus, which sounds kind of weird, I know, and that's what makes it so ironic. You won't want to miss this part. It's one of my favorite parts. Verse 6 says, Now when Jesus was at Bethany, and this actually, Matthew's not following the chronology. 
because he, he was at Bethany, this is off the top of my head, a couple days before this. He was recently at Bethany, but actually this doesn't follow the strict chronology. If you, uh, if you have a harmony of the gospels, I have, I think at least a couple where different people have said, all right, let's, let's take all the gospel accounts together and let's put them together, cut and paste in, in, in the, in the chronology of things. It's rather interesting because different gospel authors do different things for different purposes. Some really stress the thematic. Some really stress the chronology. Some really stress, there are different camera angles stressing different things. But when you look at the flow of chronology, this is a, what one, one scholar said is a, what did they call it? A flashback. So, not strict chronology here, but hearkening back to, and it's probably because of this, probably because we're going to see, it will be a comparison between something valuable given for Jesus in contrast to something not very valuable, given to sell Jesus out. So it's with a purpose. You don't need to know all that to understand the passage. But now when Jesus was at Bethany, so close by Jerusalem, just up and over the Mount of Olives, actually quite close, in the house of Simon the leper. And commentators would say, Simon the leper is either cured of his leprosy or no longer alive. Why would they say that? because you wouldn't have a bunch of people gathering in the leper's house. <laughs> Jesus could pull it off, but the rest of them wouldn't do this. They would be unclean and in danger. In the house of Simon the leper, then verse 7 says, a woman, John's gospel account tells us, it's Mary, the sister of Martha, and the sister of Lazarus. A woman, Mary, the sister of Martha, and Lazarus, according to John's gospel account, I think it's on purpose that... Matthew doesn't name her. She's just a woman. And in case I forget, because later we're going to learn about the disciples who you'd expect a lot out of. But this is a nameless woman here who you wouldn't expect a lot out of compared to the disciples. And it's ironic. It's going to be reverse. Okay, let's keep going. A woman, verse 7, came up to him with an alabaster flask that already tells us it's valuable because of that. But then we keep reading a very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. John's gospel account says, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, some of this is not extraordinary because it's not extraordinary to have a guest and anoint them with oil and to show hospitality and refreshment, dry, arid climate. And so that's, that's on the normal side of things. But here, it's the value. And we're going to even learn more about the value. Extraordinary value. And it's an extraordinary act of either absolute crazy foolishness or an extraordinary act of what I'm going to call getting it. And you might guess which one it is. This is so fascinating. How about verse 8? And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. They were enraged. They were furious. They were bothered. They were indignant saying. And John chapter 12 tells us, guess who the spokesman of the disciples is? 
Judas is the spokesman of the disciples. It doesn't mean he's the only one. They're all in it. But Judas is front and center. It says indignant saying, why this waste? What do you think you're doing? Are you crazy? Verse 9 says, for this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. John chapter 12 verse 5 says, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? A year's wages is what it's worth. I mean, maybe it would be nice to be nice to, to, to Jesus and, and maybe it could be one 365th value oil, but a year's worth of compensation? It's extraordinary value. What, what on earth are you possibly ever thinking? And we know we're supposed to be good to the poor, so it sounds pious. It sounds good. It's true. Have you lost your mind? And then, this is so good. Verse 10, please don't miss this. But Jesus, aware of this, and I wrote in my notes, just because I see the big picture, aware, sovereignly aware of this. I mean, whether it was right there or not right there, he knows what's going on, not the first time. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, look there, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. Then comes the logic. Verse 11. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. In other words, what? She did the right thing. She did the right thing. And I think we could just stop there, but I think there's actually a rationale behind it. If you would, just look at some stressors with me, if you would, when it comes to word repetition and redundancy for stress. Verse 10 says at the end, the second sentence, for she has done a beautiful thing. She, in contrast to the rest of you, but notice a beautiful thing to me. Let's stress me. Then verse 11 ends with, Me, verse 12, anointment on my body. There's the third stress on Jesus. And then it ends with, in verse 12, prepare me for burial. It's true, Jesus is humble, the most humble person who ever walked the earth. But Jesus, the humble one, this is not in contradiction. Jesus, the humble one, also is in touch with reality. And he is the Passover lamb that all of human history has been waiting for. And so it's me, me, my body, me. In other words, I am the unique one. I am the one that human history has been waiting for. I am the one and only one who can fulfill Daniel chapter 7. I am the one and only one who can save his people from their sins. I am the Lamb of God who takes away sin. I am the one. And so by she, by, by she my English is going to get really crazy here, but, but by the fact that she did what she did, she sees me for who I am and rightly responds. If it were just anyone wouldn't be fitting. It's pretty cool just to see the simplicity of that. 
she's responding rightly. If you have the king, the forever ruling and reigning king who delivers and protects and provides and conquers enemies, the ultimate judge who's not against you as judge, nothing is of too much value. And so here, the most valuable thing is given for him. It's, it's good to see this. It's great to see it. Jesus is saying that he is unique, the perfect Passover lamb, and that this time with him is unique. How about this? Unlike the poor, they're not unique. It doesn't mean there's not a responsibility to them. Jesus has been doing things for them, but they're not unique. He's unique. And so it's a fitting response. And what is about to happen to him is unique. He's going to die a substitutionary, saving, atoning Death, And so if there ever was a good use for this kind of perfumed oil, this is it. There's more irony, isn't it? Isn't it odd? It's meant to be odd that you typically would anoint a dead body. And he's still alive, but he said it's going to happen. She doesn't even need to see it. And all of a sudden, she's all in. I don't know what she understands and what she doesn't understand. She, but she understands something. And she understands something significantly to do this. And how about this? She understands that while Jesus was a good teacher, Jesus did miracles, Jesus fed people, Jesus taught, she understands Something really important because lots of people believe those things. She understands Jesus had to die. You see, it's a big, it's a big deal. She understood, in other words, let's put it in our terms, that Christianity is about not just the example of Jesus, though he's a perfect example. It's about the work of Jesus and she's all in that it is about death. And that gets us to something else if we keep reading. I think this will help you understand. Verse 13 says, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel, this good news message about Jesus being the Passover lamb, Savior, crucified, delivered up lamb, is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. One of those verses that, that makes you kind of go, What's the, what, really? When I, when I heard the gospel, nobody said, now, let me tell you a story about Mary. It could mean that. It could mean this gospel account. Um, if you know the answer for sure, quick text me. I'll wait. <laughs> I won't. Um, I, it's turned off, actually. Only once has someone texted me and I texted them back while I was preaching. And they said, how did you do that? I don't know. I don't want to try it again. I don't recommend it. Um, but my text back was, thank you, but please stop texting me while I'm preaching. Somebody else said, how do you tweet while you're preaching? I said, I, I staged them ahead of time. And why are you looking at your phone when I'm preaching? <laughs> oh, the wonders of modern technology. It gets weird. <laughs> Where were we? Okay. But back to what I was alluding to earlier, 
one thing that we do have when the true gospel is preached, we have the substitutionary work of Jesus. The gospel is not, it's nice to be nice. The gospel is not, Jesus is a great teacher. We have the be happy attitudes. And as long as you follow the be happy attitudes, like Robert Schuller used to say, God will accept you. No, she understands it is about him and his atoning death. And so she offers death-related ointment because she gets it. Now, I wouldn't base my salvation on that understanding, but I think, I think we're on to something. The disciples have been saying, over my dead body will you die? They've been confused and perplexed, and here she is. He said he's going to die, and she anoints him with death anointment before he's even dead. I like it. Now, we could look at it another way, and I don't think these are mutually exclusive. But when she sees the one and knows he is the one who came to save his people from their sins, she shows that she's all in. She shows that she's trusting in him and not in wealth, not in riches, not valuable, valuable perfumes. She shows her heart of gratitude and confidence. And so we could see it as a good picture of faith. We could see it as a good picture of devotion because of what he's going to do for her. I think those things are all true also. Really amazing. Really amazing what happens here with her. One pastor who's now in heaven said this about her. I thought it was striking. She found only, excuse me, she is found, this woman Mary, is found only three times in the Gospels. And in each instance, she is at the feet of Jesus. She sat at his feet and listened to the word, Luke chapter 10. She came to his feet in sorrow after the death of Lazarus, Lazarus, John chapter 11. And she worshipped at his feet when she anointed him with the ointment, our text. And then in one really helpful, simple sentence, he says, She found at his feet her blessing. She brought to his feet her burdens. And she gave at his feet her best. End of quotation. Okay, final striking point of sovereignty and oddity, if you will. Irony that's odd. Number four, we'll do this one quickly. And that is the irony of betrayal. The irony of betrayal. And I think the reason Matthew includes what he just included here is because of this. How about verse 14? Then one of the 12, and let me stress this for a second, the nameless woman, and now one of the 12... One of the twelve disciples of Jesus that we name cathedrals after. One of the twelve whose name was Judas. I hope you don't name a cathedral after him. Whose name was Judas Iscariot. Luke 22 tells us he's indwelt by Satan. Went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray. He's already betrayed him. To deliver, literally, 
to deliver him. So Zechariah 11 talks about the 30 pieces of silver almost used mockingly because of the great lack of value. Exodus chapter 21 says uh, that this is what you pay if you have a slave who's gored by an ox. Well, you know what? There, there were 30 pieces of silver. In other words, not much. Just a statistic. The expensive ointment from a woman, one of the twelve, betrays him. It just shows the pettiness and the lameness and the insanity of all of these things in comparison. A measly 30 pieces of silver. It's ironic. It's meant to be ironic. Matthew is stressing the irony of this. The King of kings and Lord of lords, the ultimate Messiah who will save His people from their sins, the Passover lamb, and He's sold for 30 pieces of silver. Now, lest lest you forget that, that there is a sovereign plan, I can't help myself because we're talking about sovereignty in Jesus, but to cross-reference just for a moment or two, Judas betrays him, he's culpable, he's guilty, it's terrible what he does, but make no mistake about it, it is according to a sovereign plan that even this is going to happen. John chapter 6 verse 70, did I myself not choose you the twelve and yet one of you is a devil? John chapter 17 verse 12, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name The son says to the father, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Irony, awful irony at times, heinous irony at times, but make no mistake about it, always and forever involved in the whole thing, Jesus is sovereign. And there is a plan and there is a purpose and no matter what, it is unfolding. We've got good actors, as in right responders, as in Mary. And we've got bad actors, as in Judas. But all along, a an unstoppable, perfect, redemptive plan that Jesus says is, from the foundation of the world, is unfolding fast forward to the the apostles when they seek to help people like us who live on the other side of the ascension the other side of the resurrection it's no wonder they say things like God causes all things to work together for good for those who are who love God and who are called according to His purposes. They're irrevocable purposes. They're definitive purposes. They're sovereign purposes. And that's not merely a Pauline doctrine. This is how it's been. This is how it is in the life of Jesus, in the suffering of Jesus, in the crucifixion of Jesus, in the timing of the crucifixion. All of this is from a God who is sovereign and who can be trusted to the point where all of a sudden we find ourselves on the other side of all of these events saying, we trust this kind of God. He's trustworthy. We might have questions. There might be mystery involved. I've got plenty of them. 
But this is a pattern. And all you have to do is look for it and you say, oh, the irony and the sovereignty. We should pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for, for Jesus, who is the sovereign king. Thank you that he is also a great and mighty savior. Uh, thank you for the fact that even as he said, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. We're grateful to know that Jesus is that kind of savior. May we find ourselves trusting in him and holding no amount of trust back from him because indeed he is worthy. Encourage us as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.